Hello, my darling little oak trees. My name is Jessie, and welcome to my podcast, Tea with the Gods. Today, we discuss the Trojan horse in the room, Zeus's wild libido. Yes, we're finally going to break down Big Papa's sexual escapades, but this episode isn't going to give detailed accounts of the myths you've most likely already heard. Instead, I thought it would be far more beneficial for us, and also for Zeus himself, if we use these stories to discuss how we as followers should go about interpreting myth. What kind of role should stories like Europa, and Leda, and Semele serve in our worship? And how can we as humans with big hearts and a strict set of morals find love for Zeus amongst the ickiness that is his mythology? So, let's pour ourselves a nice soothing cup of tea and get this baby started. If you've been following me for some time, then you most likely know that I don't view the myths as factual, at least not completely. I think one problem is that many people being influenced by Christianity in some way want to look at mythology similarly to how most Christians view the Bible. But our mythology isn't sacred text. It isn't scripture and never has it claimed to be. Funny enough, though, I actually view our mythology in the same way I have always viewed Bible stories. Tales crafted in order to teach specific lessons, to spread a particular narrative, and to explain certain phenomenons. In my mind, most religious stories are humans' way of trying to make sense of the world around us, and if I'm going to be cynical, control. I think a lot of Hellenics have it in their heads, thanks to Christianity mostly, that in order to be part of a religion, you have to believe in every aspect of it. Which is humorous when you learn that the ancient Greeks themselves didn't even take their mythology that serious. For the most part, mythology was entertainment to the ancient Greeks. I mean, come on guys, it plays out similarly to our modern sitcoms. Zeus trying to hide all his infidelities from his ball and chain of a wife, Hera, who typically finds out about it anyway, and she gets even. Granted, the Zeus and Hera stories have a lot more violence and sex than will ever appear on a sitcom, but I think the framework of it is essentially still the same. Like, for example, it's an older show, but if any of you have ever watched King of Queens, you have the husband, Doug, who is constantly fucking up. Like, he's always doing some kind of stupid and extremely selfish shit that he knows full well is stupid and selfish, so he typically spends the entire episode trying to hide it from his wife, Carrie. And Carrie is that stereotypical, ball-busting, nagging wife that basically holds the entire household on her shoulders because her husband is a man-child. Anyway, by the end of the episode, she of course finds out about his dumb shit and hilarity ensues because him getting caught and her reaction is our entertainment. Zeus's mythology is no different. It's pretty much a sitcom, but for an ancient Greek audience. Listen, humans may have evolved, but we haven't changed that much. We still find entertainment in the same heteronormative and misogynistic bullshit. And speaking of misogynistic bullshit, let's get into the violence towards women, shall we? I want to share with you a passage from the book Zeus by Ken Dowdens. 
In several cases, we see myth homing in on a moment frothed with danger for the virgin. She meets Zeus, the embodiment of the dangerous and powerful male, perhaps the husband depicted as alien and illegitimate. Her beauty exposes her to him, and the result is suffering and transformation. The stories focus on these vivid expressions of the end of maidenhood. We do not find stories of incorporation back into the community as a mother, with all the authority of womanhood and as part of a female citizen order, which means to celebrate great rituals such as the Thesmophoria. Anxiety makes memorable myth. Anxiety makes memorable myth. If you leave this episode remembering only one thing, let it be anxiety makes memorable myth because that right there sums it all up wonderfully. Thank you, Ken Dowdens, for that line. Unfortunately, I know I don't need to sell you on the accuracy of that statement. We still live in a world where violence towards women is used to make memorable entertainment. We have the girl in the fridge trope, for God's sakes. I mean, it's done so many times that we have an entire label just for it. And again, the ancient Greeks were no different. They used the anxiety of the women who were first taken by Zeus and then punished by Hera to create stories that you're unlikely to forget. Regardless on whether you are entertained by these stories, you can't deny the fact that they are indeed memorable. We all know about Europa being abducted by the white bull, about Leto desperately running from Hera while very pregnant with the twins, Semele being burnt up upon seeing Zeus's form, and Metis being devoured. We remember them, and now we're even discussing them, centuries upon centuries later, because they still have captured our attention and imagination. Homer and Hesiod and all the others did exactly what they meant to do, make memorable myth. And that's the point. These stories first and foremost are created and then passed down by humans, not gods. Even though they talk about the world of the divine, these stories at their core are very human because they were told by humans for the entertainment of other humans. So don't look at these myths as sacred or scripture or the word of Zeus. No, that's not what they are and never what they ever claim to be. Now, what does this mean for Zeus? Well, looking at his mythology as more entertainment as opposed to factual allows us as Hellenics to distinguish actual Zeus from mythical Zeus. As I talked about in the previous episode, there is so much more to Zeus and his role in our world and our worship that mythology doesn't bother to cover because those aspects of him don't serve the purpose of mythical Zeus. And again, mythology was never designed to give us a detailed account of who the gods are and how they fit in religion. Now, I know I may get some angry people for this next comparison, but fuck it, it's my podcast. I feel like basing your entire perception of the gods on their mythology is similar to using just Rick Riordan's books to form a view on who the gods are. Okay. Now, I'm not saying that mythology and Percy Jackson are the same or should be viewed the same. I do think that mythology as a whole has a lot more to teach us, which we will get into, 
but they are essentially still works of fiction that use in a lot of ways characterized versions of the gods to tell amusing stories. And isn't that basically what Rick Riordan is doing? Okay, now that I most likely pissed some people off, let's move on to my next point. Besides providing entertainment, the myths served other purposes. For Zeus's mythology in particular, there is a clear point to the stories surrounding his various affairs. Children. All of his sexual endeavors, minus Ganymede, results in the conception of children, because ultimately that is the main focus of the story. Much like Zeus's origin myth, these stories aren't really about him, nor are they about the women he sleeps with. They are about what is produced from those encounters. Going back to the Ken Dowden's quote, he touches on this, pointing out how we only see the women in their most vulnerable state, but really hear nothing of them afterwards, because their use lies in birthing the extraordinary children of Zeus. That's all the myths require of them. Homer even stresses this point in both the Odyssey and the Iliad. In the Odyssey, Poseidon states, Rejoice in our love, my lady, and when this year has run its course, you will give birth to glorious children. Bedding down with the gods is never barren, futile, and you must tend them, breed, and rear them well. In this passage, Homer pretty much confirms that the main point of God sleeping with mortals is to produce children, and basically that there doesn't need to be any other reason because it's glory enough as a woman to be pregnant by a god, to have the pride of raising their children, which isn't that surprising because that's a reflection of ancient Greek society. In the Iliad, before sleeping with Hera, Zeus proceeds to list his many sexual conquests in an attempt to show his love and lust for his wife. Yes, because that sounds like a smart idea. But as he's listing these women and his love for them, it's apparent that what he loves and appreciates most about them is the children they bore him. Let me read some of it for you, and if you want to read the whole thing, you can find it in Book 14, Hera Outflanks Zeus, at around 380, at least in my version. Or you can just message me on social media and I'll send you the whole part. I loved Acrisius' daughter, Danae, marvelous ankles, and Perseus sprang to life and excelled all men alive. When I stormed Europa, far-famed Phoenix daughter who bore me Minos. Alcmena, queen of Thebes, who bore me a son, that Lionheart, that Heracles. And Semele bore Dionysus, ecstasy, joy to mankind. It kind of reminds me of Henry VIII and how his favorite of all his wives just so happened to be the only one to bear him a son. See, no matter where we are in the world or what time period, a woman's only value lies in the children they can and do produce. So back to Zeus's mythology. What we have is less a commentary on Zeus's character and more so origins and explanations for significant figures. The most infamous of Zeus's mythical stories just so happen to also be the origin stories of some of the most beloved gods, Apollo, Artemis, Athena, Dionysus, and this applies to mortals as well, Heracles, Perseus, Helen of Troy, King Minos, possibly Alexander the Great, who knows, I'm open to the idea. 
They all came from Zeus, which gives them all a sense of legitimacy. Like, of course they are special. Of course they're powerful and beautiful and better than all of us. They came from Zeus. And this wasn't just applied to people. The concept was also used to explain and legitimize lands and nations. It's why when you read the myths, especially the ones directly from ancient sources, you see a lot of mentions of where people are from and where they went, where babies were born. The location was important because a lot of the times it was used as a foundation story for particular cities. And this all echoes back to the idea of Zeus being the father, the creator, and the center of all things. Here we see him fathering many extraordinary children who go on to make their own mark on our world, have their own extraordinary children, and establish and rule new prosperous lands. And the cycle continues with it all centering around Zeus. He is the head of the world's household after all, and with how important the concept of lineage was in ancient Greek society, it only makes sense for Zeus to have a long, prosperous, and significant line of descendants. I'm telling you all this in hopes that you'll gain a new perspective on not just Zeus's mythology, but all of Greek mythology. We've established that the stories being told were indeed told by humans for humans, which means there is a human voice, bias, and narrative being told. So it's important to keep that in mind when you begin analyzing the myths, and honestly, whenever you read anything. If there's one thing my degree in history taught me is that all authors write with a bias, and there's always some sort of narrative being pushed. So you have to be aware of that as you begin combing through all the resources for your research. It's easy to look at Zeus's mythology and immediately mock him for his sexual endeavors or to label him a rapist. And for mythical Zeus, maybe that's okay. He serves his distinct purpose. He's entertainment. He's a reflection of ancient Greek society. He's how we explain our world. He's a device used in mythology to further specific narratives. And now he's a reason for us to have discussions like this. But he shouldn't be confused with the true Zeus, the Zeus that we as Hellenics actually worship. There is a clear and significant difference. And I hope now knowing that allows you to look at Zeus in a new light and perhaps even approach him at some point in your worship. All right, my noble eagles, that about wraps up this episode. I really do hope you enjoyed it. It was very hard for me to narrow down everything I wanted to say because there is a lot more that can be said about the myths and their role, but I think I'll save those points when we discuss the other gods. I really do want to know what you all think about this topic and the points I made and what are your views and opinions on it. I want to open this up for discussion, so feel free to comment or come chat with me on my social media platforms, which are on Twitter, Tea with the Gods, and Tumblr and Instagram, The Pastel Priestess. Next episode is going to come to you quick since I skipped a week this month. Sorry, Big Papa. And it's going to be on how to go about worshiping Zeus. So I hope you join me then as we wrap up January and the month of our beloved Pops, as Hermes most definitely calls him. Thank you so much for supporting me and my humble little podcast. I wish you all the absolute best. And until next time, may Zeus be with you, my loves.